The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother, go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you. My name's Brent. If you haven't yet met me or I've not met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church, and it's my joy to preach the Word of God this morning to each of you. Um, if you uh, would, I would ask that you'd pray with me because we need to, to ask the Lord that He would do the work in this moment through His Word. Uh, so let's go to Him together. Father, we know that your word says, and we've even studied it recently, that you are the God who gives the growth. Father, uh, we can labor, we can toil uh, in your kingdom, but it's you who make things grow. Lord, I want to just acknowledge that and ask for your help this morning. Lord, we pray that you, by a miracle of your grace and your goodness to us, would cause your word to take root in our hearts. Lord, would you cause us to grow up into maturity in Jesus Christ? God, would you be at work in the lives of those that maybe aren't sure what they think about Jesus yet in this room? Lord, that they would be moved to see him in all his glory and majesty and to worship him and to find new life in him. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm wondering this morning if you've ever felt at a time in your life that, that you were living at odds with who you actually were. I don't know if you've ever felt that or, or know what I'm talking about. There, there's a time when I was a little younger in my life when I, for a whole variety of reasons, began esteeming certain personalities uh, more than others, personalities that, that I was not. So I began to, to look at uh, people that were especially analytical and, you know, strong thinkers. And that's kind of the dominant personality traits that they had. And, and I wanted to be like that. And I began thinking, well, you know, maybe that's who I am because I wanted to be it so bad. I began to try to try to live in this way. And it didn't take very long before I began to learn about myself with everybody else who knew me. And maybe as you guys know about me, already know that I, I, that's not who I am. God's not made me as uh, predominantly the, the deep analytical thinker. And if I've missed an appointment with you in the past, uh, I apologize. Um, if I've forgotten something and caused you some, some pain because I've forgotten something, well, I, I'm sorry. Uh, but it's just not who God has made me to be. But as I came to terms with who I really am, with who God has made me to be, with what my identity is, I had this great sense of rest and peace. So I stopped trying to be someone who I wasn't, but I actually just began to live as I truly was. 
See, living according to who we really are is good for us. But living sort of against the grain of who we really are in opposition to who God has created us to be, it's bad for us. It's destructive to us as human beings. And in our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's getting frustrated with the Corinthians. He's getting frustrated with them because they're living against who God has made them to be. They're living against who God has created them to be. And Paul knows what they should be. He's taught them all about who they ought to be. He knows that when he first shared the good news of the gospel with them, that he taught them about who they actually are as new creations in Jesus Christ. He'd already taught them that they were a miracle people. That they were a people who've been made fully human now as they've been filled with the Holy Spirit and created in Christ Jesus as this new kind of people in this world. But the Corinthians had a problem because in their pride and in their distrust of the word of God, they weren't living according to who they really were, according to their new identity. In chapter 5, which we've looked at the past several weeks, we saw the way that Paul had rebuked them for living against who they really were. This sexual immorality that they were entertaining, it has nothing to do with who you really are. Get it out. Be as you really are. But this kind of thinking goes on now into chapter 6 because Paul's going to rebuke them again for something else. He's going to rebuke them for something else along the same lines. You are living against who you really are in Jesus Christ. I'm going to call you to repentance. So as you look at our text together, what we're going to do is this. I'm going to take some time to show you what we're talking about. Look at the situation that Paul's describing as he gets to chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians. And then we're just going to have two points. We're going to look at who we are and why it matters. So look at some context and the situation, then who we are and why it matters. And brothers and sisters, friends, as we look at this passage, I'm praying for you. I've been praying for you this week because my prayer is that we would all come to realize who we really are in Jesus Christ and that we would take joy and encouragement in living as God has created us to be, as we embrace who we are in him. So first, would you consider with me the situation Paul's addressing and look at verse one with me. Paul says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So Paul had heard about a situation that was happening in Corinth. He'd heard that they're fighting with one another, but that their fights were kind of growing and escalating. And these disputes that they were having were escalating. So they would begin to litigate one another in the public courts in Corinth. This is a horrible situation. We don't know exactly the nature of the disputes that the Corinthians were having. There's lots of speculation about what this could have been, but we don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what was going on, but we do know what that culture was like because we have lots of other uh, witnesses from that ancient time of what the culture in those days was like. And Corinth was a place where public litigation, where suing one another and pressing charges against one another was so common that some commentators I was reading this week called it the national sport of Rome. 
right? Like this place where, where litigation was just the normal. So imagine living in a culture like that. I mean, we, I know we sue one another a lot in our own culture, but I don't think like they did in Corinth. There's actually this one ancient uh, source named Athenaeus, and he describes what was going on here in the warp and woof of normal civic Corinthian life this way. He says, after dinner drinks comes mockery. After mockery, filthy insults. After insult, a lawsuit. And after the lawsuit, a verdict. After the verdict, shackles, the stocks, and a fine. So this is just the normal way of going about your business. You kind of get in a tussle, you have an argument, you know, you take things to the next level, you go, and next thing you know, you are in this public place in the city uh, being tried for your crimes. And the way they would do this is that these civic matters were, were held in the public marketplace. So you have to imagine something like, you know, Robson Square, and you're going out there, and there's this, the Bema. The Bema was this kind of round, if I showed you a picture of it, I should have put it up there, I didn't, you'd recognize it, uh, where the, the judge would sit. And, and they'd sit in that seat, and all of Corinth would kind of gather around, and they'd watch the proceedings uh, to kind of see how the litigation went, and to hear uh, the trial, and you know, this is what was going on, and this is what so-and-so is saying, and now we're waiting for the decision. It was a very, very public things. What was happening was that rather than living like Jesus, who gave his life in love and in sacrifice for sinners, Instead, the Corinthians were defrauding each other and cheating each other and then dragging these conflicts out in a public way into the streets of Corinth. This is a problem. I'm not sure you can imagine a church that was like that. <laughs> you come here, you're a little worried you're going to get in an argument because someone's going to sue you. You know, I hope nobody's worried about that here this morning. Um, but it was a problem, a problem in the Corinthian church. It was a problem because of all the places on earth. Christ said the church ought to be a place where justice and righteousness are done. Of all the places on earth, the church ought to be a place where when we have wrongs, when we offend one another and are at odds with one another, we can work out reconciliation, where we can forgive one another, where we can show mercy and grace to someone who wrongs us. But it wasn't that way in the church in Corinth. And Paul's astounded by the way things are going. He's upset. This passage, I think he's really, really letting them have it. The tone of this passage is not, is not deep encouragement, but deep disappointment and rebuke. He's kind of committing to get to them, communicating to them like I would imagine. I can imagine easily because I was this teenager. Like a parent sometimes speaks to their adult child when they're just flabbergasted by that stupid thing that they've done. You know, like you ought to have known better. How could you possibly have done that? And I've, I've been there. I, I feel that. I don't have kids that are in their teens yet, but I'm sure I'll be on the other side of that at some point in the future. But Paul's speaking to them this way. You ought to know better. Don't you know who you are? So once you look at our, our first point, who you are, and consider Paul's words in verses 1 to 4. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels 
How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Paul's astounded. He's astounded because this disconnect between the Corinthian identity and the Corinthian way of life. Who they are as Christians is having little or no impact on how they're living their daily lives in Corinth. So what is their Christian identity? What's Paul want them to see about who they are here? Well, Paul reminds them of who they are in this passage. You might not see it right away, but I'm going to try and show you what he's talking about. He's saying, you as Corinthians are those who've been created in Jesus to rule and to reign in this world in justice and in righteousness. You are those created in Christ Jesus to rule and to reign in justice and in righteousness. We see that because Paul says two things to them that have to do with who we are as a new creation, as a new humanity that reigns in justice and righteousness. He says the Corinthians are those, number one, will judge the world. He says the Corinthians are, number two, those who will judge angels. So let's be honest for a moment. I'm not sure that any of you guys woke up this morning thinking, you know, I'm really looking forward to the day when I'm going to judge the world and, and judge the angels. Did anybody think that this morning? Nobody? Well, Paul kind of says it offhand here to the, the Corinthians, doesn't he? He's saying it to them as if it's something that they ought to have already known about themselves. Kind of like if you, if I were to say to you, you know, you know, as Vancouverites that sometime this month, you're going to get wet outside. Right? Like there's this thing that they ought to have known about themselves that they did know about themselves that Paul can just barely refer to and they would have got. But I'm guessing it's not the same way for us. I'm guessing that we probably, unlike the Corinthians, don't really realize what Paul's talking about. So before we can understand what Paul is doing by saying all this stuff, we need to see what he's talking about, about this rule and this reign that Christians have in Jesus. We want to understand that so we can see the argument that he's making. And so bear with me. We're going to get a little bit into the weeds here. This is a really, really important, I think, incredibly exciting topic and truth about who we are as Christians. I've been passionate about this all week. I've been praying because I'm not sure I can communicate it as clearly as I want to, but there's something beautiful here. I'm going to ask you to, to hang on, bear with me. Let's go in to see what Paul's saying so we can, we can understand what the argument is. So when Paul talks about Christians judging the world and judging angels, what he has in mind is an incredible passage in the Bible from the book of Daniel. You see, Daniel was a prophet in Babylon during the time when Israel, God's people, had been defeated by her enemies and had been taken away as slaves to this place called Babylon, to ancient Babylon. And in chapter 7, in this midst of, of living in this persecuted, horrible way as exiles, Daniel's now writing this prophecy. And he writes about the prophecy, the day that will come when God would write the injustices and the horrors of exile and brokenness and sin and oppression in this world. And he writes about the way that God's going to do that by raising up a savior, a human being called the son of man. And this Savior is going to rule forever in a perfect kingdom that will be unlike Babylon in every way. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. So Daniel starts his prophecy this way. He says, I saw in the night visions. And he describes what he saw. He says, And behold, with the gods of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the answer in this passage to the problems in this world is this the son of man, this Messiah figure who's going to come and who's going to have an everlasting dominion. But the backdrop to this passage is one that I think we would all recognize. It's a, the backdrop of evil and injustice everywhere in this world, right? The darkness is deep around us today too in Vancouver, isn't it? We know that this world is evil and wicked. It's normal for us as citizens of this world to live for ourselves in a way that neglects the good of our neighbor, right? If we don't outright oppress people, we just live for ourselves and ignore the suffering of those around us. When we try to do justice on our own, apart from God's word, which we do in this world too, it seems that no matter how hard we try, it's almost like we're making things worse, right? We're trying to accomplish justice, but then we, we try to solve problem A and it out props problem B, C, and D, and E as a consequence of what we did wrong with solving problem A. And also, if you see justice trying to be worked out in this world, apart from the word of God and apart from what he's doing uh, in, through, through Jesus, we have another problem because the goalposts of what justice even is are constantly moving. Not sure if you've realized that. But when we try to invent our own justice, it'll be one thing a decade ago, one thing two decades ago, one thing three decades ago, and another thing today. And then... Even more than this, the people that we look up to as heroes of justice and righteousness in this world, we get to know them, we see their lives, and we're disappointed because it turns out they're all too corruptible themselves. But Daniel 7 speaks of a Savior who will make things right in a broken world. And the Savior is described in these striking ways. He rides on the heaven, Daniel says. That's how he sees him. This is unmistakable language for divinity in the ancient world. This is a, this is a God. This is God himself riding on the clouds of heaven. But he also is called a son of man. That's the language about who a human being is. It's actually the way that Jesus loved to refer to himself in the gospels. So what God is saying through Daniel to human, human beings suffering in a broken, sinful world is this. He's saying, I am going to save you. <laughs> You're in exile, but I am going to save you. I, who am God, will come to you. But I will save you from all sin and injustice by becoming one of you. I will become the human ruler that you were meant to be so that I can restore you to the rule I made you for. This is what Jesus does. God become the human ruler that we were meant to be so that he can begin to work in us to restore us to the rule that he created us for. Christy, I don't know if you know this, it's so important you grasp this, but God created you for dominion of this world. Did you know that? 
God created you to rule this world as his children who bear his image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, it teaches us that we were made to rule this world under God by living the character of God outward into this world. But because of our sin, our dominion in this world, you don't even need me to elaborate this, our dominion has not been as it should be. It's pretty clear, isn't it? We've not lived for the good of others, even for the good of the world that we live in. Instead, we live selfishly, right? We have a selfish and inward churn and everything that we touch seems to be corrupted. Whether that's a government, when you see governments exercise dominion, it's pretty easy to point out all the ways that governments serve themselves rather than serving the people. But also it happens in your workplace. The dominion that you're supposed to have is churned selfishly and you live for yourself as an employer or as an employee. It also happens in the home as we see mothers and fathers and wives and husband and children all living for themselves versus living the character of God outward in justice and righteousness and love. But Daniel prophesies a time when God would restore us as human beings to the rule we are made for. Look at Daniel 7 verse 14 again. I don't think I have a slide. I'll just read it to you. And to him, to this God-man, to Jesus Christ was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom. One that shall not be destroyed. And many years later, Jesus came. He came and he was unlike every human ruler who came before him. Because though he was God, though he had an infinite power that no corrupt human authority can grasp, he didn't use it for himself. But he laid down his power, what was rightfully his, in order to give his life in the service of others so that we could be saved. And now in the church, God is restoring humanity in Jesus to the dominion that we had lost through our sin. So I want you to think about a manufacturing facility. Think of a factory for a second. In the factory, if you're going to create a product, so I'm told this is going to be a very bad illustration for the engineers in the room. I just saw Jeremy. Jeremy, forgive me for this one. Um, But you have to have the prototype or the archetype, right? To, To then begin to work off of and to create all of the things that you want to make in the image of that first prototype or that first archetype. Well, I want you to think of the church like the factory of God that he uses to create people in the image of the true humanity that is in Jesus Christ. So the church is sort of like God's factory for this new humanity made to look like Jesus. It's ground zero for God's purposes to restore rule and dominion to humanity as Jesus reigns over us and reigns through us. You see, God has this very slow and this very patient plan to restore humanity's dominion of this world. He's using the weak things we've learned in 1 Corinthians to shame the strong. He's using the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. And how is he doing that? By causing us to have dominion as we were created to, not using this world and one another for ourselves, but like Jesus, to give ourselves in sacrifice and in love 
to others. We're being created as new humans who don't insist on our own way all the time, but who give up our rights and our power, willingly suffering for the undeserving, just like Jesus suffered and gave his life for you and I. See, just like Daniel prophesied, the Son of Man has come. He's received his dominion from the Father. And this is incredible. But through the church, by his Spirit, he is giving his dominion to us. Look at Daniel 7, 27. It says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's unbelievable. That what Jesus receives as his dominion, he gives to us. That's crazy. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That, that's unbelievable. That's an idea that's big enough to fill your, your meditation for weeks and years into the future. I'm sure you're hardly grasping it. It's, it's a big, big thing. And certainly we don't see the fullness of this text being fulfilled yet. Right? We only see the beginnings of it. As right now, God is beginning this work in this world through his church, changing us to become like Jesus and not like the corrupt dominion that we have in our sin. But we know that one day, when Jesus returns, we'll reign fully and completely with him over this world, just like Daniel saw in 7 verse 22. Look at that text. Judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. The time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So look back at what Paul said then in chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3, keeping this in mind that, that he had a passage in Daniel in mind where dominion is restored to humanity in such a way that Christians will share in the future judgment of the world and of angels. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? You see, Paul's argument is an argument from identity and an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if you are as Christians, is this. If you are a new humanity restored to true dominion as you live like Jesus now. Because if, if you are as Christians, people who one day soon when Jesus returns will judge the world and judge angels with him, then surely, then surely you can reconcile with one another in the church. Then surely you're people that can figure these things out and understand how true justice would apply in these trivial matters and your conflicts in the church, then surely you know that behaving unjustly, defrauding and cheating one another has nothing to do with who you are in Jesus, has nothing to do with who God has created you in Jesus to be. Do you not know who you are? In Christ City, do you know who you are? There's, a, there's a, a point here that's worth worshiping and rejoicing over. I want to I just feel this and, and know it and, and rejoice in it together. And this text is, is saying is that we are sons and daughters of God Most High. 
that we are presently being recreated. Here in this church, you are being molded in the factory of God to become a new humanity to rule this in justice and righteousness through Jesus, your Savior. That's amazing. Who you are, Christ City, as a new humanity in Jesus, it's the most exciting thing about you. I want you to understand that there's nothing that the world can offer you. There's no identity that it can offer in, in the place of this that's more exciting, that's more fulfilling, that's more meaningful and purpose-giving than who you already are in Jesus. Do you know that when you live the day in, day out life of a Christian, when you forgive somebody who sinned against you, when you show mercy to somebody that you see is suffering, when you have compassion on somebody, when you repent of your sin, when you confess sin, when you put sin to death, when you love and when you serve people here at Christ City Church, when you work to obey Jesus, when you tell the people around you, your coworkers and your friends and your neighbors about the way that God has had mercy on you as a sinner, when you do any of this, you are participating in the expanding rule and reign of Jesus Christ over this world. That's what you're doing. This is who you are. And that means that no matter what your occupation is, if you are laboring as a Christian, no matter what you are touching, your work is not in vain. So moms, if you're tired and at home and the diapers seem never ending and the discipline seems never ending and the, the hard conversations and difficulty seems never ending, your labor is not in vain. As you seek to labor day in and day out by the Holy Spirit, as a new creation in Jesus. Friends, if you're someone who has a job that you despise, <laughs> you just hate your job, you're not happy to be there, your labor in this place is not in vain. As you labor as someone who's part of this kingdom, as you live like Jesus where you are, if you're unemployed or if you're retired or whatever it is that you are doing, if you are doing that work faithfully as a Christian, it is meaningful, eternally glorious work. Who you are as a Christian matters more than anything else in your life. You're being recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you this week, live like it. Whatever your context might be, don't lie, don't cheat, don't blur the lines of what is right and wrong, don't labor just to get more money, don't cut corners. Students, work hard, don't do things primarily for yourself, but look for ways to serve others in your class, and in your home, and in your workplace as a Christian made in the image of Jesus. You have a profound new identity in him. It's a new humanity. Live for him. Live with joy. Live as you are. So we've looked at the situation the Corinthians were facing. We've considered what Paul taught them about who they really were. And now we're going to see why all of this matters and why Paul's so upset about it. Look at what Paul says in verses 5 to 8. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be 
There is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. See, it matters to live like what we are in Jesus. And it matters, Paul's showing us in this text for a couple of reasons I want to highlight. It matters first because Paul says not loving like we are is not living like we are is something we should be ashamed about. He says, I say this to your shame. You know, Christ City, our, our Western world right now is on a mission to remove shame from us. Right? We, we don't call sin the evil that it is. We just stop talking about sin because what we're really aiming at is trying to get rid of shame. Right? So there's no such thing as shame anymore. Or we don't, we don't want uh, to have any shame in our lives. But the Bible calls sin, sin, and says that shame over sin is a good thing that's meant to lead us to our repentance. So you need to know that there is such a thing as good shame in the Bible. It's the shame and embarrassment that comes from seeing our sin for what it truly is. It's a good thing. It's a good thing, especially when it leads us to feel our sin for what it is and then propels us then to run to Jesus who can deal with our guilt and our shame. And we can come to God and know that we are loved, that we're forgiven, that we're accepted and delighted in because of Jesus, because he forgives us. So the Corinthian sin was shameful. They were a church that was publicly cheating, defrauding, and litigating one another. And Paul wants them to be ashamed so that they would repent so they would turn away from all of that and live towards God as they truly were created in Jesus as a new humanity. So it matters. It matters because it's shameful. Second, not living like we are matters because it destroys our witness in this world. See, Paul says they are already defeated. Because when you live like this, you're already defeated. Your purpose as a church to bear the name of Jesus, to be a light in this world, to be the, the light on the lampstand and the city on the hill that shows this glorious goodness of what God's doing to make a new humanity. You know what? It's already lost. If you're living this way so publicly, it's lost. Your point and your purpose of being here, it's broken. It's over. You know, one of my friends, he, he likes to tell the story of the way that when he was an electrician, how, how this happened to him and he had this kind of wake-up moment in a profound way. He was in charge of crews and he worked in industrial complexes um, over the control rooms of those systems that were used to control whatever those factories were, were making. And he said that when he was in these contexts, it was just an unbelievably vile place to work. He said it was, it was just full of profanity. Pornography was pasted up on like all the walls of all the lunchrooms and of all the places and all the control rooms. He says the conversation was constantly overtly sexual. He says, and very demeaning to women. It was horrible. And he says that after years of working in these places, he had a colleague who found out that he was a Christian. And he said to my friend, you're a Christian? 
I had no idea. Because my friend lived nothing in the workplace like who he was in Jesus. You know what would help us in our witness in Vancouver? Living like what we are. Living joyfully as those who've received mercy and forgiveness and new life and dominion and a new humanity in Jesus. Living as those who just with arms wide open are receiving the goodness and the grace of a merciful God to sinners like us. Living deeply in love with this God who's first loved us. Living lives that are characterized by thanksgiving and joy because God's been so good. Living lives that overflow with the love we've received. So that as we learn to obey Jesus, little by little, we follow him with joy. We're not afraid to stand up for who we are as Christians. We're not afraid to speak his name, to be who we really are, the followers of Jesus. I want you to take a moment here, and I want you to think about your workplace. I want you to think about your classroom. I want, to think about, I want you to think about your family, your time at home with the kids. Where is it that God's calling you to repent of the ways that you're not living like Jesus? That you're not even living like who you are as someone who's been made in the image of Jesus. See, the Corinthians... They should have been a display of God's own character, but they destroyed their witness by dragging their sinfulness out into the public square. Just look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 6 to 7 again. Paul says, Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So Christ City, it's safe to say that our context is a little bit different, isn't it? Right? I don't know that I've ever gone to Robson Square and watched public litigation happen, especially not between Jonathan and Doug. You know, like we don't come and watch church members gather together and, and just watch the, watch the fight. That's not what we do here. It is in our culture. But think about it for a second. Are there ways that even the conflicts in the church are made public in our own culture? I think there are. I think that we have our modern day version of the Bema, the judgment seat, in social media. Maybe in some other ways, but let's just point that one out for now. I think that the internet has allowed Christians to feel justified in airing every grievance that we have with one another in ways that are utterly shameful and that would destroy our witness. So I want to encourage you to live like who you are with a couple practical steps. I think one way that we can grow, one way we can grow is, is just by not posting things on social media when you haven't had the opportunity to talk to that person and to work out your differences face to face. I want to encourage you not to get involved in controversies that don't pertain to you and your own community and the friends and the Christians, brothers and sisters that you know 
and that you can talk to. Social media does this weird thing, right? It causes us to think that we're, that we're um, able to live everywhere in the world. It expands what we think our scope as human beings is. But your scope is not very big. You occupy two square feet. And God knows that and he's okay with it. So the matters that concern you are the matters that are in your community where you can talk to someone face to face. I want to encourage you not to follow accounts or blogs or podcasts where the purpose of those accounts is just to point out the errors of others. I don't think it's healthy for you as a Christian and I don't think you're meant to do it. I think it can be part or being become becoming party with just airing the grievances that other people have publicly in ways that, that are against who you are in Christ Jesus. You see, there is a way to deal with offenses in the Bible. There is a way. And we actually have to work hard here at Christ City Church to grow in that way. You know what it is? It's when you see a problem in someone else's life, you get up the courage, you pray about it, you examine yourself first, you, you repent of your own sin, and then you go and you talk to that person face-to-face in private. Christ City, we need to grow in that at this church. And only when that is done, and if there isn't repentance, then you go and you bring someone else and say, hey, can you talk to so-and-so with me? Because I think we need to express this in their lives, and I don't think there's any repentance and any change. And only then does it escalate to, okay, well, they're still unrepentant. Let's talk to the elders. Let's maybe work towards moving this thing a little further down the line. And only at the end of all of that is there this bringing before the whole church, the situation, and a matter of church discipline. There's an appropriate way to deal with conflict in the church. And we need to grow up to live this way. You see, creating controversy is attractive, but it isn't Christian. We're not meant to live for it. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. You know, you don't get any points on social media for being a peacemaker. You know, one last thing before we close that I want to address this. Some of you are probably thinking about this passage and you're aware of situations where some churches have used this passage to justify hiding the sin that's in the church. I want to assure you that hiding sin, that hiding criminal behavior in the church, that hiding the oppression of weak and vulnerable people, on the pretense of obeying this passage in the Bible, has nothing whatsoever to do with this passage in the Bible. Has nothing to do with this passage. First, because this passage is about us acting like who we are as a new creation in Jesus, who are to rule with Jesus in justice and righteousness and selfless love. And hiding from criminal prosecution as church leadership or as a church community is doing the exact opposite of any of those things. It might prevent you from getting caught, but it won't prevent you from destroying your witness and bringing shame on the name of Jesus perpetuating hurt to vulnerable people in the church. And second, some Christians have said this passage means that you shouldn't go to court at all as Christians. Hey, look, it's right there in the Bible. Don't go to court. You know, Paul says it. Again, that's not what this passage is teaching. So Paul himself, he speaks well of even temporal human justice. And in places like Romans chapter 13, verses 3 to 4, he writes about the way that God's appointed law courts in this world to punish evil and to praise those who do good. It's not perfect justice, of course, but it is justice that we should be thankful for 
and submit ourselves to you as Christians. So let me say this. If you ever see criminal activity, wicked activity here at Christ City Church, can you do me a favor? Can you call the police? And then after you've called the police, you can inform the elders and the leadership so that we will be able to cooperate with whatever investigation needs to happen. And another thing, if you see sin in my life and the lives of your elders or of one another, would you do me a favor? Would you confront us according to the passages of scripture that give us instruction for these matters? If you see us hiding it, call us out. Work through the process of biblical discipline. We want to be a church that walks in the light, that does not hide sin in the dark. So finally, Christ City, you are children of the God of the universe. You've been recreated as a new humanity through Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And that means that all you do in this life as Christians matters. It matters. So this morning I'm wondering, do you lack purpose? Right now, are you struggling to find meaning in your life? If you lack a sense of real meaning and belonging and identity, maybe it's because you aren't living as you've been created to live as a Christian. Maybe it's because you're not living according to who you really are in Jesus Christ. I want you to know that God has loved you. He's given you everything in Jesus. I want to invite you to join us here at Christ City Church in living our identity with joy as we receive from God all that he's called us and given us to be as we live those things outward into the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you and praise you for your goodness, for your kindness to us. Lord, I am just so grateful that, that you are the sort of God who fixes what's wrong in this broken world uh, with our broken humanity and restores our humanity in Jesus and gives us this glorious purpose to rule and to reign according to the character of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to take joy and confidence that the little things that we do day by day, moment by moment, they matter for all of eternity. Lord, help us to live like who we are in Jesus Christ. Amen.